The satellites are probably most well-known for uh, the images that they take of advancing hurricanes, but really they watch everything that's going on, whether that's clear skies or thunderstorms, you know, ice storms, snow, flooding, fire, smoke, and even volcanic ash. Having multiple polar orbiting satellites giving you observations at different times during the day allows the weather forecasters to put together a three-dimensional picture of the atmosphere which is exactly what you need when you're trying to do a, a weather forecast. You're listening to Small Steps, Giant Leaps, a NASA Apple Knowledge Services podcast where we tap into project experiences to share best practices, lessons learned, and novel ideas. I'm Dina Nunley. Satellite technology has drastically changed weather forecasting, and our conversation today is with a couple of experts on Earth-observing satellites, NOAA's Pam Sullivan and NASA Goddard Space Flight Center's Edward Kim. Pam and Ed, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, great to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, glad to be here. Could you tell us about your current role and the path that led you to what you're doing now? Oh, well, for me, I knew I wanted to be in the space program since I watched the moon landings when I was a five-year-old. And that passion brought me to work first um, at the in the Air Force, where I worked on the space shuttle program, um, and then to NASA, where I worked on weather satellites, as well as science research missions like Hubble and James Webb. And then finally to NOAA, where uh, my current job is that I uh, lead the team that's developing NOAA's geostationary weather satellites. Yeah, and for my part, I... Um I also watched the moon landings uh, when I was five, and I don't think I missed a single one of them. So, you know, any any kid growing up around that time probably did the same thing. But it never occurred to me to go work for NASA. Uh, I, I was always interested in, in engineering. So uh, I followed a pretty typical path of uh, going to school to get engineering degrees, and then almost purely by chance ended up taking a job with NASA. Uh, and almost purely by chance, ended up working on the uh, weather satellites that uh, NASA helps NOAA build. Do you think the collaboration between NASA and NOAA is different than typical interagency efforts? I do. For one, it's really long. Uh, I mean, it started really at the very dawn of the space age. You know, NASA launched its first weather satellite in 1960, um, and NOAA was involved in the project then. And, you know, very quickly, they started using the images and the data for weather forecasting. And before long, you know, they realized this data is indispensable, really, for their mission. Um, and they realized they needed, you know, not just a, a short sort of research-aimed mission, but they wanted uh, long-term, continuous observations. Um, and they kept that partnership with NASA over all of these years. You know, every weather satellite that has been developed has been between the two agencies. Yeah, and, and I, I would add that what NASA brings to the table is it's a, it's a really great collaboration. You know, the two, the two specific agencies, you know, NOAA and NASA in particular, have a really great collaboration when it comes to weather satellites. Um, the parts that NASA does are really tailored to NASA's expertise and experience, and the part that NOAA does is also similarly tailored to what you know NOAA's got a lot of expertise uh, and experience with. NASA, of course, and and NOAA as well uh, collaborate with um, a large number of other government agencies, and I think in those cases it's a similar situation. Each interagency relationship is 
tailored to what those two agencies need from each other. So in the case of NASA and NOAA, it's, uh, it's a great partnership and a long-running one, as Pam just pointed out. And Pam, from a project management standpoint, what do you think has made this successful? I think it's both the complementary and um, and the shared missions. I think of of the two agencies. Um, you know, both agencies have a mission to better understand our universe and to share that information for the benefit of humankind. Um, you know, both agencies are really built with science as the core. You know, so those are the things that they share. And then the complementary um, nature, of course, is that NASA um, does the development and the engineering, and then NOAA uses that data and, you know, develops the science products and uh, translates the information, um, gets it out to the public in a way that people can use. So, yeah, very complementary. I would I would second that. I think there's both similarities and differences. Um, you know, the two agencies both use satellites to look at the Earth uh, and extract information from the satellite observations that uh, people can use uh, for all sorts of different purposes. So th- that's extremely, you know, it's essentially the same for both agencies. Um, but there are some, you know, there are, there's some important differences. NOAA is, is really much more of an operational agency. I mean, they have congressionally mandated things they're required to produce uh, weather forecasts, et cetera, hurricane forecasts. I mean, you know, you name it. NASA is more of a research agency. Uh, so NASA has, of course, its own, you know, just pure NASA satellite missions. And they, Earth sensing ones are the ones at least I'm more familiar with. And they uh, are more research centric. And they tend to, you know, be more cutting edge, maybe in terms of the, either the technology or um, how the observations are used, and maybe the first time a particular type of observation has been obtained. And so, of course, there isn't necessarily a long history of how you would use that information. So whether or not the observations from a NASA mission lead specifically to something immediately that uh, you know the person on the street can use, well, that's not the immediate goal necessarily of uh, many of the NASA missions, eventually uh, we, you know, you expect what we learn, um, the technology that's developed and so on to produce tangible benefits for, for society and people, you know, the average person on the street. But in the case of NOAA, you know, it's much more direct. Right? The observations from the NOAA satellites, you know, uh, weather forecasts are the, the perfect example. You know, um, they're intended to be used by the public immediately. Do you have any additional thoughts yet on what has made this successful from a science perspective? Well, like for every observation, there's there's science behind it as well as technology, right? The science comes into play in the form of understanding what you're looking at. There are very few sensors that directly measure something that you may be interested in. For example, the intensity of a hurricane or uh, the rain rate uh, in your backyard. In the case of rain rate, for example, we have sensors that directly measure information about water droplets in the atmosphere. That has to get translated into something like rain rate. And those translations are done with algorithms, and that's where science comes into play. Uh, figuring out how to translate 
a physical quantity that you can observe into something that you want for your weather forecast, for example. Um, there's also science that goes into you know the, the physics of how the observer the sensor works itself, but that maybe is usually considered more technology. Um, so NASA does a lot of technology development. Uh, it's not the only organization that does that, but because of you know NASA's interest in space missions and observations and sensors, NASA is involved in a lot of technology development. Has entire departments that do nothing but technology development. Uh, and then that technology is used to design satellite sensors, and, and those get used in missions. Um, and so the science plays a role in, in again, in, in starting with the physics of the phenomenon that the sensor can actually measure, all the way to the quantity that, for example, a weather forecaster is trying to get out to the public. Well, and that's a good lead-in for a question that I have for both of you, and that is, how would you describe NASA's role in weather research and the impact it has on people's lives? Well, I think NASA is really the pathfinder. Um, almost every instrument that we fly on NOAA weather satellites had a precursor instrument that was developed first um, as a science mission by NASA, um, designed, built, and flown um, by NASA. So, you know, very direct lineage that you can point to for. Um, Again, for the uh, the Earth observing and, frankly, the space um, weather observing uh, instruments. Um, the other part of it is, you know, NASA of course does research um, into Earth systems. You know, understanding the properties and behaviors of atmosphere, oceans, ice sheets, landmass, and you know that research, um, you know, leads leads to an understanding of how the Earth systems behave, which. Uh, leads to an understanding of how to predict them and develop models. And again, those were, you know, used directly now um, by NOAA in their numerical weather prediction. Um, so most of, I would say, NOAA's mission is built on the research um, that has been done by NASA. Pam did a great job of, of um, explaining that. And I would say that also, I mean, in the in what I would call the earlier phases of things, you know, developing the prototype sensors and you know launching them and figuring out how they work, that tends to be you know primarily done by NASA and historically has been. Um, the understanding of the Earth itself and um, uh, techniques for doing weather forecasting, for example, uh, that's. Certainly, uh, that kind of work does, um, NASA does that sort of research. Uh, NOAA also does quite a bit of that. So in, in, in those areas, both agencies uh, do uh, quite a substantial amount of work in, in those areas. But the, the sensors, the observations, the satellites, the, especially the, you know, the technology aspects of those, getting the prototypes, you know, dreaming up the prototypes in the first place, um, building the prototype, launching it, and figuring out how to, you know, how to actually use that, um, that primarily is, is done, has been done historically and still is done by NASA. Well, let's talk about specific satellites. So Pam, could you tell us about the GOES series of satellites? 
Oh, yeah, my baby. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, to start with, uh, GOES is an acronym, of course, stands for Geostationary Operational Environmental Satellites. Um, And again, I need to talk about history here because we have uh, uh, been flying GOES satellites for a long time. The very first one was launched in 1975. Um, Now, that was after um, NASA had pioneered a couple of geostationary weather satellites ahead of that. Um, But the first one that we called GOES-1 was launched in 75. And there's ever since then, there's been at least one GOES satellite observing um, over the U.S. Um, And then just last March, we launched um, the 18th uh, GOES satellite. Uh, It's currently in checkout. Um, We actually just released uh, the first light data from its main camera. Um, and so we're um, got our fingers crossed, but everything is looking very good with, uh, with our GOES-18 satellite. Currently, our operational concept is to fly the satellites um, in pairs. So we put um, one GOES satellite um, at the equator you know, over the East Coast and one um, at the equator, you know, at a longitude about near the, where the West Coast is. Um, and so between the two of them, uh, they both observe the North South America landmass, but then the East one, you know, sees all the way across the Atlantic um, over to Africa and uh, the West uh, satellite sees almost all the way across the Pacific over to uh, New Zealand. And with the two satellites together, of course, you can see the main weather patterns that, uh, you know, that affect the U.S. travel west to east. So the, the west satellite sees sort of the upstream storms, and then the east satellite sees those very particular storms called hurricanes that tend to travel east to west. And so with the two of them together, you know, the GO satellites really see all of the weather and other dangerous environmental phenomena that are that are going on. Um, and the satellites are probably most well-known for uh, the images that they take of advancing hurricanes, but really they watch everything that's going on, whether that's clear skies or thunderstorms, you know, ice storms, snow, flooding, fire, smoke, and even volcanic ash. You shared some fun facts, especially the history about the GOES satellites. Are there other fun facts or maybe some benefits that you'd want to talk about that maybe most of us don't even realize we're getting from this mission? Uh, well, you know, I work with a guy who says, you know, you use GOES data every day, even if you don't know you do, because um, the data that goes into it goes into, um, you know, watches and warnings when there's dangerous weather. You hear, you know, hurricane warning or a tornado watch. But, um, you know, another thing that's um, maybe less well known about the GOES satellites is uh, they are also used to forecast weather in space. And GOES-18 actually has four different instruments that are used for space weather forecasting. Um, it has a couple that watch the sun, uh, that look for solar flares and eruptions. Um, and then they've got other sensors that are measuring the local magnetic field, uh, as well as energetic particles uh, in the neighborhood of the, the satellite. And NOAA actually uses that data from those instruments um, to issue watches and warnings for space weather, um, just like they do for hurricanes and tornadoes. Um, and so, uh, you know, the people that care about space weather, um, and those are people that care about radio signals being transmitted, GPS signals, um, satellite uh, orbits are affected by space weather, uh, the power grid can be affected by space weather. So these watches and warnings um, go out to um, that community from the GOES satellite uh, data as well. What are some of the improvements with the new generation of satellites, GOES-16 and GOES-18? GOES-18 has um, a couple sister satellites. GOES-16 was actually the first of this generation, um, and and that was a huge step 
um, up from the previous generation. We have um, 60 times more data coming off of these satellites. And so that GOES-16 satellite's actually been observing um, over the East Coast uh, since uh, 2017. And with the resolution, both the improved spatial resolution and the improved temporal resolution, um, forecasters have gotten very spoiled very fast, and they are able to um, better predict changes in a hurricane. They can see changes in strength, um, changes in direction happen um, much more quickly. Um, the GO satellites can take an image once a minute. And so forecasters, you know, every minute they get a new picture of that hurricane and they can tell what's new if it's, again, if it's stronger, if it's changing direction. So it's improving the forecasts there. Um, and this, the GO-16 satellite, um, again, the first of this latest generation, um, Another thing that has really surprised folks is how well it detects fires. Um, we knew it was going to detect fires, but um, it, the spatial resolution is so good that sometimes the satellite is the first thing that alerts people that there's a fire in their neighborhood. Um, and so it is helping um, actually with uh, first responders and uh, people that um, uh, you know are managing wildlands um, th th to really uh, look to the GOES data for when fires are starting, uh, as well as you know, looking for the um, the forecasts, you know, when a fire is starting and which way the wind is blowing and, you know, making sure that they're deploying their firefighters, you know, in lo into locations that are going to be safe uh, based on where that fire is likely to move. So, um, yeah, we're, we've actually been very excited with, um, with this new generation. Um, and with GOES-18, um, this latest one, it'll, it, like I said, it's the third of this particular uh, generation. Um, and it's um, planning to go into operation um, over the West Coast. Um, and then with now that we have three of these satellites up there, we're going to have uh, both a, the Prime East, the Prime West, as well as an on-orbit spare, um, which is um, another part of uh, how we fly these satellites. We always want to have a ready on-orbit spare that we can turn on um, in case of a problem with, with either of the operational satellites. We really want to have one on-orbit ready to go you know, so that we can get, you know, this data is so critical, we really don't want a gap of any length whatsoever. And so that's why we uh, we plan to have this on-orbit spare. And so with the third one launched, we're, we feel like we've got a complete upgrade to this next generation series. Ed, could you give us a quick overview of the Joint Polar Satellite System? Sure. The uh, Joint Polar Satellite System, or JPSS, is, uh, as the name says, is the part of the observational weather satellite um, fleet that uh, includes the polar orbiting satellites, which are the, you know, the big complement to the geostationary ones that Pam uh, described. And the current set of JPSS satellites, there are going to be four of them, but then they added, or they sort of grandfathered in the uh, Suomi uh, NPP satellite. So now that, that'll uh, mean a total of five. Uh, those are effectively the sixth generation of uh, U.S. civilian operational polar satellites. The very first one, I think Pam mentioned earlier, uh, went up in 1960, um, the TIROS, T-I-R-O-S, um, television, infrared observational satellites. So these are, they were actually a series of NASA uh, experimental satellites, but then as soon as the uh, weather forecasters and uh, NOAA operational folks took a look at the images, they immediately started using them for operational purposes. And that kicked off, as I said, you know, now we're on the sixth generation of polar orbiting uh, satellites being used operationally to support weather forecasting. And the JPSS satellites, 
have uh, a small number of sen uh, sensors on board. They're all imagers, um, and they observe, you know, in different parts of the electromagnetic spectrum, channels that are tailored to observe different parts of the Earth system, if you will. Uh, there's a uh, visible infrared sensor. There's a ozone uh, sensor, and there are two sounders. Uh, so sounding means that they give you vertical profile information about the state of the atmosphere, in particular, uh, the temperature and humidity as a function of altitude in the atmosphere. And those two sounders, one of them works in the infrared part of the spectrum, and the other one works in the microwave part of the spectrum. Uh, the infrared one is, uh, the acronym is CRIS, and I I can't remember what it stands for at the moment. Um, Pam might remember. Um, Cross-track <laughs> cross infrared. infrared sounder. I think that's, yeah, I was going to say that's what I think it is. And then the, uh, the microwave one is the ATMS, which stands for Advanced Technology Microwave Sounder. And, and that's the one that I work directly with. Uh, so, so these four instruments are on the um, each of the JPSS satellites, and they're in the polar sun-synchronous orbits that uh, cover the entire surface of the planet daily. Uh, and there are always two of these uh, operational in orbit. Uh, and the um, overall system plan is to maintain you know at least two, and they're in different orbits. So if you're standing on any particular spot on Earth, you'll um, have one of these fly over your spot um, every day, actually twice a day, uh, at the same local time every day. And so through JPSS, NOAA provides two of these satellites. Um, and the J in JPSS stands for joint, which uh, refers to the fact that this is actually an international partnership. Uh, so uh, the U.S. provides some satellites and some instruments. Um, our European weather partners provide uh, satellites and instruments, and then the Japanese also uh, provide some instruments. Um, so it's an international collaboration. And I think that the weather enterprise in general has long ago become a very international enterprise. It's overseen by the um, WMO, the World Meteorological Organization, and it's, it's one of the great international um, success stories. You know, data collected by a sensor from any country on any weather satellite is, you know, freely shared uh, amongst the uh, the nations of the world, you know, so that everybody can improve uh, their their weather forecasts. And the the polar orbiting satellites, you know, they orbit lower. Um, they, as I said, they they cover uh, the entire globe and uh, observe in many different wavelengths. They produce the soundings. The soundings are probably uh, are, are are considered to be the observations made by satellite instruments that have the biggest impact in weather forecast models. Um, so, you know, it, it, if, if you were to corner a, um, a weather forecaster and tell them, I'm sorry, you're only going to be allowed to have one instrument. Uh, you know, we've been told by the weather forecasters that, that the one that they you know, would, would least want to give up, the one that they most want to have, uh, is actually the microwave sounder. And one of the main reasons for that is that uh, microwaves have the ability to s essentially see through clouds. Um, if you, you know, if you look at any picture taken from space of the earth, uh, on average, 50% of the earth is covered by clouds. Uh, and so your visible sensors and most of your infrared sensors 
uh, are, are not able to see through the clouds. So in the, in the, in the 50% of the world that's covered by clouds, you're not getting information about the part of the atmosphere that's below the clouds or uh, conditions on the surface of the earth. Uh, but the microwave sensors, because they're able to penetrate through the clouds, can give you information about that. So it really gives you this, what, what forecasters will call an all-weather picture of, of the earth. And the microwave sensors, in particular, the sounders like ATMS, are what's known as passive microwave sensors. Uh, so most people are familiar with radar. It's what the police use to catch you when you're speeding. And radar will transmit a signal and, and then listen for their reflected uh, return signal. In the case of a passive instrument, there is no, you know, there's no transmitter on the satellite. You're just relying on natural emission from, you know, from soil and air and water, and you know, everything is always emitting a little bit of energy. And the uh, the passive microwave instrument can can pick that up and turn that into useful information that's used by the uh, the weather forecasters. Uh, but that means that since there's no transmitter and it just relies on natural uh, signals put out by the Earth. Uh, it doesn't matter whether it's day or night. Whereas a visible light sensor, for example, you know, will will give you a great picture in the areas uh, of, of the Earth that are in daylight, <laughs> but at nighttime, uh, you know, they they have a harder time giving you uh, good, clear, sharp pictures. So uh, the microwave sensors are kind of unique in that respect, and having them on these polar orbiting satellites and having multiple polar orbiting satellites giving you observations at different times during the day allows the weather forecasters to put together a three-dimensional picture of the atmosphere, which is exactly what you need when you're trying to do a, a weather forecast. I think maybe a, a fun fact to throw out, NOAA uh, has a an actual, they have economists. <laughs> and one of the things the NOAA economists do is they use, you know, accepted economic analyses techniques to try to put numbers on the um, the benefit uh, in dollars of, like, for example, better weather forecasts. And I, and I remember one number that stuck in my head from, from one of these uh, analyses about 10 years ago or so was that weather forecast information impacts about 20% of the U.S. GDP. So I think in today's dollar terms, that's about $4 trillion dollars. So they're they're very important. And we can all think of examples of parts of, of industry or industries or society that uh, depend or make use of weather forecast information. Um, I think one of the exciting things is is NOAA's already planning for what will you know eventually follow JPSS. The JPSS program is is slated to run through around 2039 or 2040. Uh, and due to some of the long lead times for planning, um, there's already uh, planning underway to figure out what will, you know, what will replace JPSS at the end of uh, the JPSS program. Uh, and some of us are, are involved, NASA's involved in assisting NOAA to, uh, to help figure out what that's going to look like. If you're looking ahead, what do you expect with the next generation of satellites? Well, one thing for sure that's being looked at, and it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to replace the kinds of satellites we have right now, or you know, more likely it'll it will augment that, is uh, what you might call the CubeSat revolution. Um, you know, everybody everybody who works in the space business has heard of CubeSats, and they're not going anywhere. Right? And people are finding more and more uses for 
for CubeSats. So they weigh less, they, they're smaller, they're cheaper, and uh, so you can launch more of them more often. And to the extent that you can get similar quality observations from them that you currently get from your more heritage type satellites, you know, again, I, I don't want to, you know, suggest that NOAA's, NOAA has, certainly hasn't made any decisions yet. And I don't want to, you know, suggest that NOAA's planning to replace uh, any of the current, you know, satellites with, uh, with CubeSats. But uh, you can certainly augment the current observing fleet. Uh, if you were to add to that some CubeSats, you could um, increase the number of observations that you uh, make available to your weather forecasters, for example. Uh, and uh, you could maybe try out some of the newer technologies that, that crop up in the next few years rather than waiting until the next large you know, backbone satellite is launched. So it's, it's taking advantage of technology advancements and opportunities that are coming uh, in large part from the, you know, from, from the commercial sector and trying to see if, um, if they can be used to provide useful observations for the NOAA mission. And, you know, and our NASA colleagues are doing it as well for, for NASA research purposes. Pam, your thoughts about the next generation of satellites? Yeah, so on the geostationary side, um, a, little, a little bit to contrast with what's happening on the polar satellites that Ed was talking about, the um, things like CubeSats, you know, the designs of those are not yet uh, to the point where people feel like they can trust them in geostationary orbit, which has um, the more severe um, radiation environments. And the geosatellites are typically built to last 10 to 15 years. And so so that new technology that's like everywhere in low Earth orbit um, is not quite gotten to, uh, you know, practical applications in geo. So we're, you know, we're kind of watching that, but, um, but planning um, for the next generation geosatellites has started. Um, and it's going to be a program, we've already named it, it's called GEOEXO, which stands for Geostationary Extended Observations. And uh, these satellites are also planned to observe in the 2030s and 2040s and even into the 2050s, which kind of blows my mind. Um, but we're trying to look really far into the future um, as we're setting the requirements for these um, satellites, you know, to understand what our users are going to need um, from observations um, in that time frame. And so we've engaged with thousands of folks literally in our user community um, from all kinds of industries. Like Ed said, you know, the weather satellites not just benefit, you know, individuals with their weather forecasts, but the, um, the weather data is used by, you know, the power industry, agriculture, transportation, you know, recreation. It's, you know, huge fraction of our economy, you know, has a need for this weather information. So we've tried to reach out to um, as many users as we could talk to, to hear what they, you know, wanted to see and what they think their needs are going to be for the next generation. So for GeoXO, um, I'd say three things that we're um, uh, really excited about that are going to be new. There are three new instruments that we're planning on adding. So we're going to keep doing sort of the main cameras that we have right now, but we're going to add to that an atmospheric sounder instrument. Uh, this is uh, one of the instruments that Ed talked about. Uh, we have in uh, the polar orbits, but uh, people have really gotten used to that um, real-time, you know, nearly instantaneous um, view that they get from GEO. And so we're going to do a, a sounder that can provide uh, information that will really be used for now casting, um, you know, for 
taking like hourly looks at the U.S. to look for, you know, where is convection um, starting to happen? Um, you know, where are we going to have um, weather and, and provide that real-time information to forecasters? One of the main drivers, you know, for the sounder instrument is just that people need better forecasts, right? Our users, um, when we're, you know, asking them what they need, they're saying, you know, climate change is really driving um, you know, hurricanes are getting stronger. Um, all storms are getting wetter. Um, in general, the weather is getting more unpredictable. And so the, the uh, sounder observations combined with, you know, improved um, numerical weather forecasting um, is really going to try to address um, that need that we've heard from our users. Um, a second instrument that we're planning on adding is an ocean color instrument. Uh, this is another one that's uh, been used in uh, low Earth orbit, but uh, again, people really want that instantaneous data uh, that you can get from uh, geo-orbit. And so our ocean color instrument is being planned to have um, roughly every three hours uh, scans of basically the uh, the, the U.S. Um, uh, coastal areas, as well as Great Lakes, the Caribbean. And so one of the main things that people want that for is to address uh, the phenomena of harmful algal blooms, um, which, you know, when I was a kid, I never heard of beach closures, you know, but now beach closures for HABs happen um, all the time, you know, hundreds of times a year. And so people really want um to be able to, you know, watch where these uh, harmful algal blooms are happening, how fast they're spreading, um, in order to be able to more accurately um, predict, you know, when areas are affected uh, so that they can take, um, you know, measures to uh, protect against that. Um, and then the third instrument uh, that uh, will be new for uh, for geostationary orbit will be um, an air quality instrument. Um, and this is another one of these examples where, you know, NASA's doing the first one. Um, NASA's flying an air quality instrument called Tempo um, um, late this year. And um, it will be designed basically to look at the atmosphere across the U.S. hourly. Um, and it will be looking for uh, nitrous oxide and things like formaldehyde and ozone and, you know, th things that are um, not so good for people to breathe. Um, so it'll be doing an hourly measurement of air quality. Um, and it'll last, you know, for um, a few years. And then um, for GeoExo, we're planning to um, build on that NASA research instrument and turn that into uh, an operational instrument. And then basically hope, you know, if, if all goes well, we'll be making that measurement forever. Um, and it's really, really important. I, I was um, actually shocked to learn just how wide the health um, impact is due to poor air quality. Uh, there's really over 100,000 deaths a year due to poor air quality. And so, you know, we're hopeful with better forecasting of air quality, with, you know, better able to tell people, you know, stay inside, you know, you know, d don't have you know, don't be outside or, or don't be doing strenuous activities. Um, you know, we're really hoping to be able to, um, you know, have the data that will allow people to limit their exposure to that um, and hopefully, um, you know, make a, a positive health outcome there. Yeah, I might add that the program that's going to look at the future polar orbiting satellites uh, also, as Pat mentioned, on the geostationary side, uh, you know, that program has been named GeoXO. So the complement on the polar orbiting side has been named LEO low earth orbiting program and they're doing very similar things with respect to sensors and satellites in the polar orbits. Many thanks to Pam and Ed for joining us on the podcast. You'll find their bios on our website at apple.nasa.gov slash podcast along with a show transcript and links to related resources. 
If you'd like to hear more interviews and get information about what else is happening at NASA, we encourage you to check out other NASA podcasts at nasa.gov slash podcasts. As always, thanks for listening to Small Steps, Giant Leaps. <laughs>